Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Our guest today is Carl Hergenrather. He's the coordinator of the Comet section of the ALPO. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Thanks for having me, Tim. Uh, i got to tell you, the Comet section has a special place in my heart. It was the first mm-hmm. uh, section I contributed to back in the 70s, and it was the first section that actually took one of my observations and posted it in the uh, the journal, so that was... It, it means a lot to me. In the comet section, you know, it's always been active, too, because, I mean, the coordinators we've had from uh, Dennis Millon to to John Bortle, you know, people like that, you know, I really looked up to. So it's, it's, it's good to have someone like you in this position, too. Well, yeah, it, and actually it was the comet section that got me involved in ALPO as well. Um, from the very beginning in high school, it was the first section I contributed to uh, routinely. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have some pretty bright comets in my youth, so that helped the situation. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Okay, so um, currently I work at the University of Arizona as an astronomer. Um, I grew up in New Jersey originally, um, not too far from New York City, but luckily the skies weren't too dark back then. And I had a father who was really interested in mostly the space program, um, but also a little bit in astronomy. Okay. You know, we had a, he had a 60-millimeter telescope, a refractor. 
And I don't, for some reason, I don't really know why, I really became attracted to the astronomy side of things. It might be because I had, you know, a basement full of books about, again, the space program and astronomy. And not only was I interested in astronomy, I was, for some reason, drawn to comets in particular. I mean, as early as, like, kindergarten or first grade, I knew I wanted to discover a comet. I wanted to observe comets. And you've done that. And I've done that, yeah. <laughs> Many of them, but apparently, right? A couple, four. Yeah, yeah oh, very discovered good. four. And, uh, you know, I was born in 73, so, I, you know, I missed the, the big, bright comets of the 70s. And okay. by the 80s, of course, everything was Halley. Right. So I remember, um, even though my dad had shown me, you know, Jupiter and Saturn through the telescope when I was really young, it was when Halley was coming around that I basically, you know, asked, you know, can I actually take the telescope outside and use it? And he let me use it. And I mean, I think the Pleiades were the first thing I ever found in a telescope by myself. Oh. And then Halley came, you know, a half hour later. Oh, very cool. Very and cool. then from there, yeah, I just, you know, eventually I was able to talk my dad into buying me something a little bigger. So I got a six inch, one of those Mead Schmidt Newtonians okay. back in the, the late 80s. And and it was Comet uh, Borson Metcalf was the first oh. one I actually looked at and, um, uh, did a magnitude estimates and submitted them to the International Comet Quarterly. Mm-hmm. And that started a program of observing, you know, just, again, I was in high school, observing whatever comets I could find and even did some comet hunting. Uh, eventually, when it came time for college, um, you know, I kind of hemmed and hawed as to exactly what I would do my research in or what I would major in and eventually decided, you know, astronomy is what I really loved. And U of A, you know, I took my sky and telescope magazines and just counted up all the... Uh, times a university was mentioned and the u of a was number one so uh-huh. I'm like, okay, i'll go apply to the u of a and very quickly i i got a job with steve larson who also does comets right mainly because i had met tim spar who was a uh, an under a senior undergrad at the time but was actually my first astronomy uh, instruct instructor teacher and he was working for steve and, and kind of got me hooked up there and from working with steve and tim that eventually grew into using the Catalina Schmidt telescope, which was a telescope that was built in the early 70s and basically sat there dormant for a long, long time, using film and started hunting for comets and asteroids and found my first comet in 96 that way and found our first near-Earth asteroid in 96 as well. But that survey, which was really just a kind of seat of the pants whenever we had free time, um, grew into the Catalina Sky Survey which is now the, the number one asteroid discovery survey out there. So and, th- that's how you discovered your four comets through the Sky Survey? Yeah, well, the first one was with film, so that kind of predated Catalina. We called it the Bigelow Sky Survey at the time. And then, yeah, the three later ones with CCDs. And um, even though I left Catalina back, I think it was 2002, 2003, um, I've always stayed interested in comets and continued observing comets. Um, I did spend a lot of time doing asteroid work and kind of officially still get paid to do asteroid work now. Um, in fact, nowadays I work on the OSIRIS-REx mission, which oh. is the third NASA New Frontiers class mission after Juno and New Horizons. And it's led by the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to a near-Earth ast- carbonaceous near-Earth asteroid named Bennu to collect samples and bring it back. So that's what I do for my, you know, my work is more spacecraft engineering now and right. planning than, than science but and I don't really get to the telescope much anymore in fact I don't think I've been to one of the, the professional scopes in about three years now but I've got you know a few things in the backyard here and so I like this morning I went out and observed a few comets mm-hmm. yeah we have some nice comets in the sky right now 
Yeah, we do quite a few. Yeah. Um, in fact, it was kind of rare that you know the very tail end of 2016, early 2017, there were no really good bright comets in the sky. Usually, we've been really lucky that not only is there at least one comet bright enough to see in like small binoculars, but for example, the last couple of months there's been up to four. Mm-hmm. And I'm, they're all early morning comets, right? Um, actually, two of them. Yeah, I mean, mostly they're better in the morning. Right. Um, two of them, 41P, Tuttle, Jacobini, Krasik, as well as uh, Comet Johnson. If you wait till about 9, 10 p.m., you can start picking them up in the evening. Okay. Okay, great. So uh, you say you have some telescopes around the house. What do, you, what do you use for observing at home? So a lot of times, I mean, the key with comet observing is to use, if you're going to do magnitude estimates, and that's usually what I concentrate on, is figuring how bright these objects are. You want to go with the smallest aperture that allows you to actually see the comet. So if they're bright enough, I mean, heck, if they're really bright, you just use your eye. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually I use 10 by 50s, but my quote-unquote go-to instrument is a pair of Vixen 30 by 125 binoculars. Nice. Hmm. Now, how and do- I, have bigger, I have bigger stuff. I have a 12-inch Dobsonian, and I have a, 14, a C-14. I rarely take them out. It's so much easier just to lug the binoculars out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, um, how did you get involved with the ALPL? So I think I learned about the ALPO. It was high school time, <clears throat> late 80s. Um, I think there was an ad in Sky and Telescope. And so I sent an email to Don Mockholtz, who mm-hmm. at the time was the ALPO recorder, and just basically said, you know, I don't have a lot of equipment. Like I said, I had a six-inch telescope, pair of binoculars, but I was willing to start contributing observations. And I think this was about 1990 I started contributing those observations. And the nice thing is, since I've taken over as the recorder, um, Don did such a great job, as well as the other recorders, of keeping every single piece of correspondence. I actually found the poorly typed and spelled letter that I had sent them. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's that's the thing. I've, I, in the comment section, all the recorders have been pretty meticulous with data. Mm-hmm. And that's very good, yeah. So what brought you into being the uh, section coordinator? So what happened was I had, you know, I was a member of Alpo, you know, late '80s, early '90s, and then there came a point, probably about mid '90s, when I was doing so much observing at the professional telescopes that I kind of stopped observing for fun mm-hmm. as an amateur. And there was about ten years there where I didn't do much backyard observing, and during that time, I kind of let my Alpo membership lapse, as well as memberships for a lot of other things. And when I picked it back up again, probably, oh, I don't know, 2007, 2008, when I really started getting back into amateur backyard observing, and it really helped that I moved to a house that had a relatively dark backyard as well. Uh, Alpo was one of the ones I just decided kind of on a whim to just rejoin. Hmm. And there was a... I, th- I can't remember which year it was, but there was an annual meeting where it was it was mentioned that the Comet section needed help. And so I emailed Gary Cronk and just said, hey, Gary, if you need any help, I'm willing to help. And he said, sure. If you want to be, you know, assistant coordinator, come on in. And Gary had been spending a lot of time writing the cometography and other books. And so he really didn't have quite as much time to uh, contribute to the session. The, the section. So after it was only after a few months, he basically said, "Hey, if you, you if you want to take it over, please, by all means." Yeah. So give us a little overview of the comet section. So the comet section, like you mentioned, goes back really, really far. 
And the goal is to try to observe as many comets as possible, especially the bright ones, and to make detailed observations of these comets. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can make observations, just like there's a lot of different kinds of observations. The most traditional way is to actually try to estimate how bright the coma of a comet is, what we call total magnitude. And it's a little different. I mean, a lot of people will do uh, brightness estimates to say variable stars. And it's similar, but it's kind of difficult because you're trying to compare the brightness of a big, diffuse cloud with a star that's in focus. So you have to kind of out, you know, take the stars and make them out of focus till they match the size and brightness of the comet. And then you just basically write down, okay, I saw this comet on this day. It was this brightness. And then you give a little more detail, say uh, how big the coma was, how long the tail was, and what we call degree of condensation. Mm-hmm. Was it very, very diffuse, something you can barely even make out, or was it you know, very condensed and uh, compact? Yeah, I remember when I was first doing magnitude estimates, and that out-of-focus method is really, it's pretty simple. It I mean, is pretty simple, you, you yeah. Just take this, you look for stars that are relatively the same brightness and just turn your telescope you know, to, until, the, uh, until the star's image gets larger, basically, because it's so far out of focus, and the brightness of that, you, like you said, you compare it to the, the comet, and it, it's a pretty simple way to do magnitude estimates, as long as you have a good reference for the actual magnitudes of the stars. Right, and nowadays it's pretty easy to get references. I mean, the old days of even just having to lug out your, I mean, I think I used the AAVSO uh, magnitude catalog back in the day. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, with these online programs like Stellarium, I mean, I just take my computer outside with me, put go. it on the night red screen, and yeah. so right there, as I'm looking through the telescope, I can click on the stars and go, okay, this is what brightness this is and stuff like that. Very good. So how do you get the word out for new comets and discoveries? So there's uh, the, the section sends out at least every month kind of a, uh, a blog posting that goes out to every member of ALPO, just basically saying here's what's in the sky for this month, as well as a little recap of what was observed um, you know, the month before. And if there is a new discovery, what I'll usually do is kind of just send out, a, again, a blog post just saying, hey, everyone, here's you know, calling attention to this brand new discovery. Things have changed a little bit from the, you know, the olden days of 15-plus you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. When you could have, you know, a lot of bright comets were discovered by amateur astronomers like David Levy and Don Lockwoods and such. And they were already bright when they were discovered because they were discovered from their backyards looking, you know, visibly, visually through a telescope. Nowadays, because of the asteroid surveys like Catalina, Mount Lemmon, PanStars, Atlas, comets are being discovered years before they're bright enough for the average backyard astronomer to see. So it's rare even though we had one last month, it is rare to kind of, you know, have to come out and say, oh, geez, Iris Iraqi Alcock was discovered at fifth magnitude. Go outside now and go yeah. see it. Yeah. It's yeah. usually such and such was discovered at 21st magnitude. <laughs> Two summers from now, it might be a good object. It might be, and that's a, that's a standard saying with most comments. It might be a good object. <laughs> yep. Interesting. So the, the, uh, the blog post you talk about, is that something people subscribe to or? I think every member of the Alpo uh, should be getting it. I'm okay. not 100% sure if everyone gets it. Okay. Um, but it's also available on the website, oh, okay. the comment section part of the website. All right, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, too, so people can just click on that and find that. So what kind of equipment do you suggest people use for comet observing? You already mentioned binoculars and small telescopes. Anything else? Well, it depends on what you want to do. Um, if, you're, if you just want to do visible observing and you want to you know, do magnitude estimates... I like binoculars, personally. 
Um, and like I said, it, it's good to have a, a range of binoculars. I mean, I don't expect everyone to go out and buy, you know, 30 by 125s, which are can be pricey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you start small. Um, 10 by 50s are even smaller for some of the brighter comets. Every once in a while, you'll get a comet that gets bright. And even my 1050s, it's a little too bright for them and too big. But to have, you know, 10 by 50s, and there are some reasonably priced, you know, 20 by 80s and 20 by 100 binoculars that are out there. That you you know you need a tripod for, but they're you know we're talking only a couple hundred dollars, not overly expensive. And I would suggest you know buying a small pair of binoculars and one of these more medium-sized pair of binoculars, rather than you know if you don't already have one, running out and buying a C8 or something like that. the The other way to observe comets, of course, is imaging, and that's really taken off now that you know CCDs have kind of become ubiquitous within the amateur astronomy community. And there, again, it, it kind of depends on what you're most interested in. Um, if you want to observe lots of comets, especially lots of faint comets, then, you know, the biggest aperture you can get that you can stick a CCE on is the way to go. But one of the things that I think is starting to be a little ignored kind of nowadays, because most people are putting CCDs on, you know, schmidt cassegrains Right is those old pictures where you'd see this beautiful, you know, picture of a long tail and structure in the tails. And, of course, this is only when the comets are reasonably bright. And there, all you really need is a telephoto lens. Right. And I know a lot of Alpo members have, um, you know, they don't necessarily have CCDs so much as they have these planetary video rate uh, imagers. And even with them, because I've got a few uh, imaging source cameras that I've used for stuff. Yeah, they're... They're designed for short exposures, and they're designed for planetary stuff, but I've stuck them on small telescopes as well as uh, telephoto lenses and got some really good images with those as well of comets. Now, the, the observations you have submitted to the comet section, uh, you talk about the Im- the images. What about, because uh, I run the training program, so I'm interested in the drawings. Do you have any ob- observers that submit drawings of the comets? Unfortunately, I since I've been involved, you know, head of the comet section, I don't think I've seen a single submission of a comet drawing, a comet sketch. Sounds and in like fact, a challenge. I think, yeah, and I think the last sketch was back uh, 2013, which was a 2011 L4 Panstars, which is the one that got up to about first magnitude. I know there are lots of people out there who do sketch comets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may not necessarily be part of Alpo, but I do see some comet sketches out there. And I take that back. I take back what I just said. There was a gentleman from Norway, uh, Bremsmith, Bremseth, who actually sent me a whole bunch of drawings he had made, not so much of current comets, but of past comets going all the way back to Comet Bennett. Oh, my. And even though I was never much... In the early days, I sketched every comet I looked at. Mm-hmm. I haven't sketched a comet in probably 20 years. I really wish more people would send me sketches because it really shows you what the comet looks like through the telescope. Mm-hmm. CCDs don't really portray exactly what it looks like to your eye. That's that's an excellent point, excellent point. Now, within the comet section, are there different types of observing programs, or is it just, um, you know, like you mentioned, magnitude estimates, and what other type of observations can people make of comets? So mostly we get magnitude estimates, and we get uh, CCD images. Um, what you can do, there's a lot you can do with CCD images. Right? I mean, most people just send me the CCD image, and they'll measure maybe the brightness of the comet on there. But for comets that are reasonably reasonably bright, <clears throat> sorry, you can actually do some processing on those comet images and actually see detail. 
for example, there was a bright comet, one of the rare ones that was discovered reasonably bright by an amateur. It was Comet Lovejoy. Mm-hmm. And all Lovejoy's comets have been pretty much awesome. <laughs> um, because usually, in order for him to discover them, they had to kind of be dynamically new comets. Sorry, dynamically old comets. Which means they've been around a solar system, so they brighten really, really fast. And so he catches them as they're rapidly brightening near the sun at a time when the, uh, the professional telescopes can't pick them up. And so he picked up this comet back in early March, and within two weeks it was sitting there bright enough to be seen in small binoculars. And there were a few observers who had been imaging it and submitting observations, and this comet went from looking like a normal comet, nice little tail, to showing jets. Right. In fact, it showed two jets going kind of perpendicular to the, the solar vector there. And it's interesting because that kind of jet orientation, I guess, or configuration is suggestive of a comet that's just split. That uh, some, yeah, that something's gone on with the nucleus and it's split. And now that they've been following this comet for a few weeks later, the comet, which did get up to six magnitudes, almost naked eye, has rapidly faded. It's lost a whole bunch of its coma. And you're starting to see it kind of smear out and it actually looks like it's disintegrated hmm. or it's on its way to disintegrating. And so there's lots of cool things you can do with CCD images and processing of CCD images to really pull out the fine detail, the jet structure. And if you've got a long enough sequence of images over, you know, hours or even days, if you can see jets, sometimes you can even watch the jets kind of pinwheel around the nucleus and you can determine what the rotation period of the nucleus is. That's very interesting. Yeah, comets. Uh, that's I think that's one of the beautiful things about observing them. No two comets I've ever seen look the same, and right. from and from night to night, mm-hmm. they're going to change. Oh yeah, and that's oh, yeah. that's the dynamic of of comet observing. That's why I, I, you know those people that are into it are really into it because of the changes that you see. How many current contributors do you have? We've got about uh, two dozen yeah. that contribute over the past couple of years. And we've got a core group of about a dozen observers who basically are out there observing every comet every couple nights. Very good. And it's usually binoculars or small telescopes? Usually binoculars, small telescopes. A few of them have uh, larger telescopes up to, I think, 16, 17 inches, and they're doing CCD observations. Mm-hmm. And there's a few who are submitting observations that from telescopes they don't own, but they're using through these various worldwide uh kind of for-profit remote sites like Sierra Stars or iTelescopes, Virtual Telescope Network. Okay, and they're all over the world, your 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 contributors? Yeah, yeah, we've got observers, I mean, of course, from the United States, uh, Mexico, Italy, uh, Brazil, Australia. Mm -hmm. Very good. Have there been significant uh, discoveries made in the comment section? Um, mostly what we've been doing, is, and this is something that very few people do nowadays, is actually figuring out what the light curve of a comet is. Not the rotational light curve like you would mostly think with asteroids, but you know how its brightness changes with uh, distance from the sun. And that was something that a lot of people were publishing papers in the professional community and the amateur community. And that's kind of almost, I don't know why, but maybe it's ever since Halley's Comet came and there was this big push to study Halley professionally, mm-hmm. and then people just kind of maybe in a way got burnt out on comets after Halley, and then after Hale-Bopp and Hyakutake. 
but that's one area of research where actually the, the con- contributions made by just you know backyard astronomers with small apertures and just figuring out how these brightnesses have changed over time. In some cases, it's the only work that's been published on it. Is the stuff that's been mentioned in the Alpo. Interesting, really. And uh, are there other publications for comets as well outside of what we do at the ALPL? I mean, of course, there's all these professional journals. And some of the work we do definitely could be published in the professional journal if we just, you know, wanted to, um, like, you know, Icarus Astronomical Journal. There used to be a dedicated journal called the International Comet Quarterly, yeah. and I'm, I'm actually associate editor of the International Comet Quarterly, and it has not been active for about the last seven years. Um, but I do talk to Dan Green, who is the editor of the ICQ, quite often, and it's not dead yet. <laughs> um, and I'm hoping it comes back because one thing is it was the clearinghouse for all yeah. these comet magnitude observations. And it was also a good journal because you could publish more, you know, comet-centric papers, but they didn't have to be quite the level of, you know, a professional journal. Kind of like with the Minor Planet Bulletin is okay. over in the asteroid section where great work, professional quality work, but... If you just want to say, I observed asteroids such and such, and it's rotating every three hours, and it's a one-page paper, you could submit that. You can never submit that to a professional journal. You have to spend ten pages saying how it's the greatest thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, well, what do you see for the future of the comment section? Um, one thing I'm trying to do is not only expand the number of people who are submitting observations, and a lot of that is going out and contacting people who may have contributed observations back in the day and then kind of stopped contributing to ALPO, as well as, you know, looking on the various messaging boards like Cloudy Nights. For example, you mentioned sketching, mm-hmm. and there's a huge astro-sketching community on the Cloudy Nights board, and a lot of them sketch comets quite often. And I've been trying to reach out to as many of them as I can to get them to start contributing more, more sketches one thing that I am kind of excited about, and I'm going to write a little article to maybe push people in this direction, is doing spectroscopy. Oh. Um, nowadays, you don't need a spectrometer. Um, you just get a, you know, basically it's a grism. It's a one and a quarter inch grism that you just stick in your filter wheel. And you can get, you know, it's a, it's a single line. It's what they call slitless spectroscopy. It's not the greatest for comets, but you but it's, it's good enough that you can actually look at it, you know, comet spectra and, and figure out the various species that are illuminating, or I shouldn't say so much illuminating, that are uh, being produced by the comet. That's a whole different avenue to go for comet observing. That sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. Is there much uh, professional and amateur collaboration in this section? There is. There, there's, there's a little bit right now going on. Um, you know, being part of the professional community right. helps. And being part of the comet professional community, I have got contacts. I know, for example, there's a group at the Planetary Science Institute, which is located here in Tucson as well, where they, they've asked for amateur or anybody's images of a bunch of comets that are small periodic comets that are flying very close to the Earth over the, the most recent year and up till next year and asking for images so they can actually look for jet structure as these comets are flying by and see if they can't determine the orientation, shape, rotation rate, and location of active areas on the nucleus of a comet. Hmm. I, I want, one thing about this podcast I want to 
inform me of also is that uh, I'd like to use it with the sections like if there's an observing alert to go out if there's a bright comet discovered or you need obser observations of a certain type of comet or certain mm -hmm. types of observations let me know and we can get together and do a mini podcast on observing that particular object so that sounds like a great idea okay. and it's also something that you know every once in a while there are these comets and i you know i look on youtube and i see if there's any videos out there mm -hmm. that are mentioning comets and you know a lot of times what you'll find is kind of the uh the fringe <laughs> and, and very wacky, wacky stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but that isn't, and every, sometimes you do come across, you know, some better videos and podcasts, but usually they, they don't quite have the, uh, the experience behind it. Right. Well, that's what I want to get here is, you know, yeah. if there's a comment out there that is brightening or is going through some changes, please drop me a note and we can put together a 10 minute podcast, put some charts on as a link. That type of thing, too, we could do. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, we've got some good ones going on right now. Yes, yes. Um, you know, like I said, Lovejoy, which unfortunately is probably, well, even if it wasn't disintegrating, we would see the last of it in the next week or so, just because it's getting too close to the sun, mm -hmm. and it won't be well observable. And In fact, I couldn't see it down to about magnitude 8 or so in my binoculars, mm. so it's fainter than that. But we have a 41P Tuttle Jacobini Krasik which is a comet that, you know, circles the sun every about five years or so. And it's making a very close approach. In fact, about as close as it can ever come to the Earth, about 1.15 AU. And it got up to around six magnitude. It's about seventh magnitude now. Not the easiest comet to see. Um, one problem with these small, faint periodic comets, even though they come close to us and they get bright, the coma spread out across so much sky that they actually have very low surface brightness objects. And I know there's been a few contributors who just have never seen it. Oh. They just couldn't pick it out. Um, even I can see it with my 10 by 50 binoculars, but it's not it's not the most impressive thing you've ever seen. Hmm. Um, but we but it's a comet that is prone to major outbursts, and I'm still holding my fingers that this thing will go into outbursts in the next month or two. Because when I say major, I mean like Comet Holmes type 10 oh. magnitude outbursts. Um, this time it's been well behaved, unfortunately. But if it were to go into outburst, ooh, you just walk outside and just, you know. There it is. Yeah, there it is. And then we've got two long period comets that are coming in that were discovered back in 2015. There's a Pan Stars mm -hmm. 2015 ER61. It's an early morning object. Right now it's in Aquarius. So if any of our, you know, planetary observers are out there observing, say, Venus, it's even a little higher, so a little easier to see than Venus. And that's about 7th magnitude now and looking pretty good. And then there's Johnson, which was uh, discovered from Mount Lemmon, just up the road from my house here. And that one is currently in Hercules, um, but pretty far north, so you don't have to stay up too late before it actually is high enough to be seen. And that's an object that should get up to 6th. Right now it's about 7th magnitude, and it should get up even brighter to about 5th or 6th magnitude, at least 6th magnitude, hopefully 5th, and be observable throughout the summer. So that's going to be a good summer comet. Okay. Great. Well, Carl, is there anything else you'd like to share with people about the comet section? Uh, just, uh, you know, if you've never observed a comet before, uh, try it. There's some bright ones out there that are reasonably bright to look at. And we don't ask for too much. I, I mean, I know it may seem daunting to figure out how bright a comet is and stuff like that. But even, I mean, I've had observations in the past where people have just said, you know, just described it. Yeah. You know, I've looked at comets such and such. They would look about fifth magnitude, coma this big, a little bit of a tail, whatever. Any observation helps. 
and more observations, the better. That sounds good. So how can everybody get a hold of you? So the best way to get a hold of me is through my email. And I do have a, a dedicated Alpo email. And yes, I do not remember it off the top of my head. Okay. <laughs> I, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Are you on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that where you want people to get a hold of you? I actually am not on Twitter or Facebook, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Carl, I want to thank you for coming on. Okay. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our guest, Carl Hergenrother, and coming on talking about the comment section. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I do appreciate it. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes. We're also available on Google Play and Stitcher. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving as little as a dollar a month. For $30.5 a month, you'll receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits. With that, I'd like to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is available in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at timrobertson56. If you want to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy, and the podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. Again, the ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, comets, and meteors. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.